Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome back to most of you. If you're, if you're brand new, um, like Jess said, welcome to you for the first time. Today we are in a sermon series right now in the Gospel of John, which we're in our final stretch, uh, which will wrap up in mid-May on Mother's Day, actually, it looks like. Um, so we're getting there. Um, we are in the kind of a, taking a deep dive now for six weeks or so into the crucifixion proper of Jesus Christ. Uh, today is part two of two of Jesus' sentencing. So he's already been arrested at this point um, and led out of the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he's being unjustly tried as an innocent man, as a son of God. That's been going on now for a, a week or two. And we're going to kind of wrap that up today. And then next week we'll kind of head, head um, or go headlong into the crucifixion uh, you know, uh, proper uh, in terms of uh, the actual event and, and keep digging, digging deeper. Um, just to put on my kind of teacher hat uh, for a second, um, like last week I mentioned, there's a lot of Old Testament references and allusions here in this part of John, and really everywhere in John, but especially here. And so to kind of have your antennas up uh, for that, and, and we as preachers will kind of walk you through that, most of those, not all of them, but most of those as well. Uh, but in, in the spirit of that, uh, I want to remind you or let you know for the first time if this is new that one other important rule of biblical interpretation that applies to this week and last week and most weeks is that God intends more from people's words than what they intend. God intends more from human authors' words uh, than what they intend. Explicit examples of this in the Bible are with people like Caiaphas, the high priest, if you remember just from a few weeks ago. He said something about Jesus and his death meaning one thing, but then John sort of, uh, as the apostle, the, the writer of the gospel commenting on that, made it clear that God intended a prophecy from that or something more, more directly corresponding to Jesus' death and, and the gospel, the good news therein uh, with that, that Caiaphas didn't intend. Um, we see it also with the Old Testament prophets. First Peter 1 says that they spoke beyond themselves. They didn't quite know what they were saying. They kind of knew in a human, physical sense what they were initially saying and writing, but God all along is meaning more. Um, we, we have this with David as well, uh, with how he handles Psalm 110 and how Jesus says David spoke in the Spirit. There's so many examples we could look at. If we had more time, we would. Um, but the idea behind this is, if this is true, and it is biblically, then we as readers should be looking for that extra layer. We should be looking for that, that fuller meaning, as the ancients called it, this idea of sensus plenur, uh, which is always some kind of gospel truth, even if it's nuanced or symbolic. Or think about how Jesus is called the mystery revealer in the Bible. There's a lot of layers to that, but part of what is meant is that Scripture is gibberish without Jesus. There is no, it doesn't mean anything apart from him. He is the substance that makes the shadow of Scripture, whether it's a story or a psalm or a proverb or whatever it is. He is the ultimate meaning behind it that the original authors didn't, uh, usually actually didn't quite know uh, what they were saying. That's even true in the New, Test New Testament actually with letters, but I won't go uh, too far into that today. Just have that in mind. If that's a new concept, uh, think about it. Uh, learn from what the Bible is doing to itself and apply that to your own reading and also kind of have that out in front of you as, we, as, as your pastors are walking that through you as well, uh, for you as well. All right, so aside, completed, let's go in here to uh, John 19, 12 to 16a, just a short five and a half verses today uh, from the middle of John 19. All right, picking up from last week, verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. 
When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. All right, so three big things today. We'll start with verse 12, kind of work our way down. Uh, the first is the, the, the coup d'etat from the French blow or strike of state, kind of this idea of an overtake uh, of a government here happening on spiritual levels. It's um, a word that kind of gets at what we've been trying to show for a few weeks now. And honestly, when we talk about sin in general, this is a really important principle to understand because sin can be, and in some ways should be, broadly defined in as much as the Bible kind of does that when it defines the term. Uh, but it's also kind of hard to get our hands on it sometimes. It can feel judgy or it can feel uh, like it's out there but not in here. Um, and so uh, verse 12 again says, from then on, Pilate, who's the Roman governor, uh, this time he's authority over these things, and so he's, that's why he's here. But he tried to set Jesus free. He knows he's innocent. Uh, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. All right, here's where we'll start. Uh, saying anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar is a really, a, a deeper illusion to the idea that anyone who claims to be a king opposes God, which is the greater irony here in the story, that the Jewish leaders are the ones who are really opposing the true Caesar, the true king in this moment, which is Jesus. And we've all done this. Uh, this is, again, that greater kind of dark backdrop against which the bright foreground of Jesus shines all the brighter, but the backdrop being part of our story, or a huge part even, the main part in some ways, depends on where we're at, of course, uh, spiritually. But uh, this is, we're, we're, all there, we're all there with the crowd doing this. And, um, and to be clear, when I say claiming to be king, I mean, I mean that in the highest of senses. This, this is not an anti-monarchy uh, type statement. There are kings in the Bible, God-endorsed ones. Uh, but the idea is those who see themselves as high king uh, in their hearts, um, by definition, dethrone God. Um, this goes back to Genesis 3, uh, just a brief stint here quick, where the devil is tricking Adam and Eve, lying, deceiving, tricking them. Um, but part of what he says to them is, if you eat this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God, uh, knowing good and evil. This is, so again, the, the early thing that the serpent does here, the devil, is not say, go out and murder people. Aha, got you. That comes later in chapter, right after this in chapter 4, when Cain murders his brother Abel. Um, the, the initial thing here is self-sufficiency. The, the, the initial lie, the initial, the initial uh, you should sink your teeth into the fruit of this, it's good, trust me, is you're okay on your own. And uh, you, 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 if you eat this fruit, you'll know enough about good and evil to, to attempt to do that and do it on, on your own. And so the essence of, what this is saying is the essence of sin is replacing God with ourselves. Whenever we think or live as though we're better than others, uh, when we think we're all-powerful, um, these are the mantras of our uh, heart, right, and our world. We hear this stuff every day. So the only voice strong enough to come back against that is the Bible and the gospel. Uh, but we hear this every day. We're all-powerful, we're able, we're sufficient, you can do it, uh, you got this. Um, I was thinking just a few months ago about that, how is there anything shoved down our throat more as a cultural mantra than that idea? Like, you got this, don't worry, you got this. Bible says, actually, you don't. 
uh, you don't got this. Um, but whenever we have these thoughts that we're inherently good, that we're able, uh, th- these, these things are descriptive. This is a narrative, basically, picture uh, of, of those ideas. Uh, so the scene here with Jesus' sentencing isn't just murderous, though it is. They're murdering the Son of God. Um, and that being sin, it's also the epitome of arrogance and blindness and hypocrisy. Because the Jewish leaders are yelling crucify to Jesus over the claim of blasphemy and uh, hypocrisy, um, or rather self-deification, but that implies that they think that they've never done that themselves, right? Um, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this scene in those terms before or not, but why aren't they yelling crucify, crucify to themselves? They've done the same thing. They've sinned. Uh, Jesus actually isn't doing this, of course. He's innocent. But what they're blaming him for, they've done. They've taken God's place. They've thought highly of themselves. They've thought lower of other people and in that hated them. Um, all these things, like, they're just as guilty of. But this is like a textbook example of the problems out there and how we yell crucify at other people and things and ideas and principles. But the problem's never in here. Oh, we're, we're fine. We're good. Uh, the problem's out there. This is the problem, though, that the, the Bible is painting this, broad-brushing it uh, into the story and in our lives, saying, uh, and this is the narrative example of this at the pinnacle here, where, where Christ himself is bearing this. Um, this is sin. Um, and the reason why they're doing this and why we do this a lot is because uh, they think that they are kings, morally speaking, um, right alongside or even above uh, God himself. The good news, though, uh, with this is that this is exactly what Jesus is like literally, physically walking right into. Uh, I I said last week how Jesus is more of a sponge than an echo wall. You know, when it comes to our sin, he soaks it up. He absorbs it uh, like a silent uh, lamb being led to the slaughter, the Bible says. He's not echoing our sin back at us and speaking, how dare you, or all these things I just kind of exposed uh, with the crowd. He doesn't say that. And and the reason is because he came to uh, die for it, not to expose like a mirror, but to absorb like a sponge. He came to wear it around his neck uh, and to atone for it. Um, And so, and not just that, not just to wash us of it, but to retake the throne himself in our hearts and to show us by the sacrifice of himself that we have done nothing to save ourselves from our sins, nor can we. And that relatedly, Life is better at the bottom of the mountain than the top. Life is better off of the throne than on. Um, These are some of the outcomes that we get when we become Christians, is we aren't just washed of what the the chief priest and the mob is doing here to Jesus, not just washed of our pride and sin, but we also, when we face the cross and realize what he's doing, we start to just realize that, that he's on the throne and he's rightly God, and he's rightly, you know, says that he saves me alone, and we kind of just start to back off the throne and realize, actually, I, life's better when I'm not in control of my life, and I don't have to be, and I, I don't have to self-justify and uh, make myself good all the time. I can own my, my problems and sin, and, and life's just better that way. It kind of reminded me then, as examples of this in the Bible, just a few quick things came to mind this week. One was King Solomon in the Old Testament, who's also a king, interestingly. Uh, In his wisdom, he says, as he's becoming king, he says, God, I can't, this is what he prays to God. God, I can't do this. This is the Chris Walker standard version, but he basically says this. Uh, God, I can't do this. Uh, I'm a child. 
Actually, that, that is from the passage. He says, calls himself a kid, even though he's not. Uh, I'm a child. I, in other words, I know nothing. I know nothing. Uh, I'm completely incapable. And God blesses that prayer. That's what he, he wanted to see. And uh, he honors that type of uh, posture. He's not impressed with our moral acuity or our self-aggrandizement. He, he is uh, instead... Uh, honors these types of, of, of prayers, which is really cool. Or his father, David, earlier in the story, uh, King David in Psalm 51. This is actually the backdrop to this psalm. It's what I said last week when uh, David, basically his probably worst day ever as a human being, when he slept with another man's wife and killed the husband, all basically in a day. You know, it's like not his best day, you know. And then he gets exposed and the, the mirror is flipped and he's called out in his sin by Nathan the prophet. Uh, in his brokenness, he writes Psalm 51. It's one of the more commonly uh, sung about and uh, quoted psalms uh, in, I think, in circulation uh, these days. Anyway, uh, but, but he says, in part of that psalm, he says, God, you delight in a broken heart. Think about that. What does God delight in? That's not a small question. That's a, that's a question we should have a vested interest in asking and answering, right? What does God like? What does he delight in when it comes to us and our spiritual activities? Uh, because there are things he doesn't. And there are things he does. So like having, having, getting our hands around this is really important. Partly David here is saying, God, you delight in a broken heart. You delight in a broken spirit. Before this, he says, if you delighted in sacrifices, I would bring them, but you don't. Uh, what you desire is a broken heart. In other words, God does not delight in perfect or fixed things. You know, what, 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 when it comes to what we bring to him, what, what, what David's saying is, um, I'm not going to try to fix my own problems or um, make up for my sin. That's Psalm 51. I'm not going to try to make up for my sin. Instead, I'm going to bring a broken heart, something imperfect, broken, shattered, not great. I'm going to bring that to you, and I'm going to trust you with the, with the, the, the crazy glue to glue that vase back together. Uh, and, and, and so this is massive, you guys. When it comes to our day-to-day spirituality, do you believe God delights in your brokenness or your perfection? This is pretty clearly saying brokenness is the answer. There's a right answer here. Uh, don't try to get it together. Don't try to make up uh, for all the stuff you've done. Uh, what, what David is saying is here is that you delight in broken things. Elsewhere it says God is close to the brokenhearted. Same idea. Um, so, um, so bring that to him. Uh, Jennifer Bain uh, and Sarah Hinlicky wrote an article years ago called Free to Be Creatures Again. Uh, a couple of just seminarians, friends who wrote an article. I think it came through CT um, a while ago. But anyway, um, they, they said in their article, and they had an experience with big God theology. They, they would say they were freed from legalistic Christianity. As part of their story, they said at the end of the article, when you stop trying to interfere, interfere with things above you, you'll have the energy and motivation to concentrate on the things around you, which is our proper task anyway. And um, so they're saying when you stop, to interf- stop trying to interfere with God and uh, to impress him and to be him, uh, you realize that, again, life is better down here. Um, I think all three of these things, whether it's Solomon's prayer, whether it's David's song, or whether it's um, these two women's uh, thoughts and testimony and article, um, all three of these things, this is what grace does to the brain. This is what the principle of God's grace saving us alone, does to the brain what the gospel does to our lives and words and what the Spirit does to our prayers. This is how it looks. 
uh, and it is not, um, would not be a waste of your time this week to seek to mimic this. This is what grace does uh, to us, uh, and it shapes us uh, in a very grace-centered way rather than a selfish one. It slowly makes us realize that life is better at the bottom of the mountain and off of the throne, and to let God be God and us be creatures again. And there's freedom, peace, joy, um, liberation at the highest of levels that come from that. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit with this, but I, I, um, to circle back, the crowds in the mob in their coup attempt um, represent the sinfulness of all of us, but also gives us hope that God sent his son to die for us and our sin of pride and self-focus so that we can get off the thrones of our lives and live free lives underneath his grace again. Always receiving, never earning. That's the first idea, okay? Moving on to the second theme of the stone pavement. So remember verse 13 says, When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus to the special place. It's named here for a reason. We'll get to that. Uh, But he sat down in the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. All right, so the stone pavement is an interesting thing that John includes here. I can't remember if um, the other three mentioned this. I don't think they do. I forgot to look into that. But, um, but aside from sounding like we've just stepped into Narnia for a minute, if you know uh, what I'm talking about, um, th- this is a thematic callback to Exodus 24.10, which I'll read here. Uh, it says, Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders, this is the Old Testament, went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire stone, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. All right, so kind of a really interesting thing here. I don't know if you guys have read this before or kind of know the context, but if, if you have, uh, you kind of know the context, it's like, this is, this is weird. You know, this is like a couple of, this is like a few people going up and just, having dinner with God, and they're sitting down, and it's a picnic, and I don't know, are they laughing? It's just like, this doesn't happen a lot, actually, ever. In the, if you know the, sort of the, the rules, so to speak, of the Old Testament, this is actually precluded. This is not allowed. You don't see God and live. Uh, things are that bad in the human heart. We're that filthy. And when something filthy enters a, a, a holy, clean presence, it vaporizes, it, it dies. In fact, there's instances of this in plastered throughout the Old Testament in the Bible of this very thing happening. So you're kind of like, well, wait a minute. What's, what gives? Uh, what, the, it's like the rules are being broken here. Um, and so when we, when we relate this to John 19, um, a few things stick out. Actually, before I get there, um, uh, two verses later, this is kind of the context. It says, uh, God says, come up to the mountain and stay here. I'll give you the tablets of, of stone that have the Ten Commandments on them, the law, the commandments that I have written for their instructions. That's important too because God, what God is doing here in this story is confirming the, the, what we know as the Old Testament. He's kind of confirming the covenant with them on this stone pavement, so to speak. And then right after that, there's this mountain ascension and the giving of, of the law, all right? So as we relate this to John 19 then, um, a few things stick out, but they do so in a comparison and a contrasting way. Uh, A lot of times when you do biblical theology, you've got both in the same story. There's like two things, Old and New Testament, they're similar in some ways, and in some ways they're oil and water. They're they're completely different. And both sides of that teach you theology. The similarities point you to Jesus, and the contrasts point you to Jesus. 
And so I want to walk, and I think this is one of those stories. I want to walk you through both sides of that. We'll start with the comparison side first and basically ask the question, what is the former stone pavement story telling us about the latter stone pavement story? How is it preparing the way for the better version of it? All right, so on a comparative level, it says that God didn't raise a hand uh, against them and they ate and drank. So the raising of the hand is basically, like I was saying before, this idea of, um, it's actually so notable that Moses had to write it down. It's like, God didn't strike us down for being sinners and in his presence. Like, he didn't send us out of the Garden of Eden afresh, you know? He, he didn't keep us at bay. There was no raising of a hand to strike uh, by God. Instead, they, they had perfect communion. They had a meal and uh, drink together. And so, like I said before, that was a break in the rule. But the key here is that all of that happens in relation to food and drink. All that happens in relation to the presence of this meal of food and drink, which you, if you remember in John, uh, is, is remarkably similar to Jesus establishing a new covenant, a new testament with us over a meal as well over bread and wine, calling it his body and blood. And here in John 19, the bread is being broken, the wine is being poured as he stands in a bloody mess in front of the angry mob on the stone pavement. He is the meal. He's God, but he's also the meal. He is the thing in what he's about to do that will allow us to see God face to face and not be struck, not die. He is the mediator. Uh, what the meal hinted at a little bit in Exodus and was kind of like, whoa, that's a break with the rules. That's not how this normally goes. That's, un, that's not the stipulations of the old covenant. This never happens. Uh, that little blip in the radar finds fulfillment here in John 19. He, calling himself the bread and wine, is that meal. And so it's the meal that allows for connection with God. It's Jesus' body and blood that allow for intimacy and closeness with our creator again. And so this is how he draws near. Uh, like in the bottom here, God doesn't raise a hand against us precisely because he is being, same word, handed over to be crucified. Uh, basically what, what John is saying uh, in kind of hearkening us back to Exodus 24 is he's saying, I will take the hand raise. Uh, no hand is being raised against us because Jesus came into the world to take it. Uh, to, to take the punishment or the stripes, as Isaiah 53 calls it, um, to take the wrath of God that we might be saved from it. Which is why, if you remember in the story, he's already been slapped on the cheek, he's been struck, he's been kill- he, and he will eventually be, he's been flogged, and he's about to be killed. Okay, that's the comparative side. That's basically saying this is a story of two stone pavements, the Bible is. The former one is a small whisper of this, this latter one comparatively. On the flip side of the coin, saying the same thing, but just more from a contrasting level, um, it's also saying, saying that this is a story of two ways of relating with God. There's one that pertains to law and one that pertains to grace, and they're different. So the former gives way to the latter by way of contrast. So to summarize that, I would just say the, the, that... Um, that aside from the meal, putting that to the side for a second, that the, and to put it more on the confirmation of the old covenant with Israel, the former stone pavement 
is followed up with the climbing of a mountain and the giving of the law. Versus in John 19, uh, Jesus' sentencing on the stone pavement is followed up with his crucifixion. Okay, so you guys see the two stories there, how they deviate? Two stone pavements, two meals, two presences of God, two covenants being ratified. But in the former, it's followed up by ascension, receiving laws of what we must do to stay in relationship with God, how good we must be, the things we must abstain from or we will die. Do this and you will live is the law that they receive, Moses received for the people. In the New Testament, it's not at all that. After the stone pavement, the, the only thing we have happen is Jesus' crucifixion. There's no mountain climbing. There's no travel. There's no go where God is. There's no work. It's just receiving what he has to give us. You see how different that is? It's completely oil and water. So the former gives way to law. The second gives way to Jesus saying, it's me alone. It's my signature that will ratify the New Testament. There's no cosign. There's no, you're not going to sign the ratification of this covenant. I sign it with my blood. There's no law given to you. There's no, you must do this to, to prove that you're a believer or to, to make me happy or to, to climb the ladder. There's none of that. Uh, the covenants are meant to be different, to tell us that story. Uh, it's a dynamic story with mountains and valleys, not a static line of there, it's everything's equal all the time that would bore us to tears and God's not boring. Two covenants, one's broken, meant to break, one that's whole. The broken one had to do with us and what we do, the second with God and what he's done. And this mention the stone pavement is a flashing neon sign saying the former one is, is giving way to this better version where it's just me, not me plus you, not me and that goodness that was kind of there. Now it's plus you and what you must do. Now it's just me plus me plus me plus me. Only me. I'm the forever meal, which is why communion is bread and wine uh, alone. And this is why we eat this all the time, because this is kind of the stone pavement. This is where cov the covenant between you and God is remembered. It's already been ratified. But when we eat this, we remember that God sets the table. He sets the table. He serves. He is the food. He's everything. He loves you guys. And he's done all of, this, uh, all of this for you and me. That leads me to this last section, which is the prepared lamb. Verse 14, kind of a simple thing. Um, it says, it was the day of preparation of the past. This is when this is happening. The, it was the day of preparation for, uh, for the Passover festival. It was about noon. All right, so um, the Bible teaches in the other three gospel accounts Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus was crucified on Friday on the Passover at 9 a.m. Or some of your translations say the third hour because the, their day started, or the first hour rather was, excuse me, 6 a.m. Uh, so at 9 a.m. and is buried right before Sabbath begins, which would have been 6 p.m. that night. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, teach. But John comes in out of nowhere, you know, uh, without any permission given to him, the audacity. And he, he says Jesus is being crucified on Thursday, the day of preparation for the Passover, and not at 9 a.m., but the sixth hour, or high noon. 
And so, like, you're kind of left with, like, is the, did he, like, did he do this just to make it hard for us, you know? Is he just, like, is he dogging us a little bit? I don't know. Um, but John is decidedly different. Um, this is one of my favorite memes ever uh, is Tiger Woods and John Daly uh, representing these two ways of thinking. But John is just off on his own thing. He's uh, telling a, not contradictory by any stretch, but like a different story, emphasizing different times. Uh, and there's no way to get around this difference, like in one sense. Like you, I mean, 9 a.m. is not noon. Thursday is not Friday, right? So this is something that like non-Christians who are skeptical or very antagonistic to the faith, maybe uh, people sometimes will look at and say, see, you can't trust the whole book. Look. You know, they can't even agree on this stuff, which is a silly argument, but this is not apologetics class. I'm going to bring it back to, to this thing, okay? Um, now, here's what I think is going on. Um, a lot of attempts have, have been made at harmonizing these apparent contradictions from a historical standpoint. And there could be some validity to some of those suggestions, such as the day of preparation was sometimes extended past a single 24-hour period because so many people were in town to celebrate. And so Friday could have been called a day of preparation, kind of, as well. And so the purchasing of this Passover lamb, the slaughtering of it, the preparation of it, um, took time. It just took time. And there's so many people there that, that maybe John you know, was just kind of saying that. Uh, that's possible, but it still doesn't explain the 9 a.m., 12 p.m. thing. And I think it's just less convincing. And another solution is much more likely and that is, uh, John is less concerned about history and more concerned about theology. He's not anti-history. He's just less concerned about those details and more concerned about theology. Thursday was the day that Passover lambs were slaughtered, being the day of preparation before the Passover. And 12 p.m. was the time of day they were slaughtered. Uh, Earlier in John, it says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And so in order to underscore that idea, John is saying that Jesus died on figurative spiritual Thursday, figurative preparation day, figurative noon, to show that Jesus was fulfilling all of this, that he was the, the, the prepared Passover lamb, that he was the Passover lamb, and that our salvation was almost here, almost here. Another way to say this would be um, the synoptic gospels are correct historically and John is correct symbolically. And in that, they're all correct. All right, clear as mud? All right, a couple of nods. You don't actually have to like, understand any of that to understand really what the main thing is here. And that is Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus, the, the Bible says in the New Testament, connects these dots as clearly as you can possibly connect them by saying Jesus is our Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5-7, written to a church to build them up and remind them what all this stuff's about. So Paul the apostle here is saying all that stuff about the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, Jesus completes it. Not only are there two stone pavement stories, there are two Passover lamb stories. The old ones give way to the new and better version. And so if you don't know this story, this is what we call the Exodus story. Uh, when Israel took a lamb's blood and painted it over their doors, uh, this is the last plague that God is going to send on the Egyptians. And God says, the plague will actually come upon you and your house as well unless 
you take a lamb's blood and kind of paint it like that over the tops and sides of your front doors. And I think it's Exodus 13, 13 that says, when, that God says, when I see the blood, when I see that lamb's blood, my judgment will go around your house. It, 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 the, the, the judgment, the, the, the death of the firstborn of your family, it will not befall you. It will not come into your home. It's, it's not striking. It's like the, the blood is the thing. God says, I'm looking for one thing. I'm looking for a lamb's blood. And when I see that blood, judgment will not come upon sinners, even though they deserve it. It will not come upon the firstborn of, of this family. That's the cliff, quick Cliff Notes version of that story uh, that, that we need to know here. And so the idea is that all those events are coming to a head here in the New Testament. Jesus is dying on the day of preparation because he's the slaughtered lamb. He's dying on the day of Passover because we are actually escaping from our sins when he dies. He's the way out. And it's not just a lamb, it's God's own lamb. It's his one and only son. This is why this is additionally so important for us to see is that God didn't just provide an animal. He gave up his one and only son for you. So this is the crux. Do we paint the blood of Jesus over the door of our heart or not? It's yes or no. Have we or haven't we? Will we or won't we? Do we want to or do we not want to? Have we believed that Jesus died and taken that figurative blood, painted it over our heart and said, I'm marked by the blood of my Savior? Uh, the idea is that when God comes back and brings judgment, he'll see the blood, but it will go around us. It won't go into us. It won't crush us. We'll escape. We'll get out. We'll be okay. He'll divert things, and in this case, he's diverting them onto his son. His son willingly taking it, uh, not an unwilling savior uh, or scapegoat or Passover lamb, willingly taking it in love for us um, so, so, we are, so we escape. This, so this is not, this little thing here of he died on Thursday at noon. Uh, no, he didn't. That whole thing is not indiscriminate. It, this is not this passing thing. It, it's saying Jesus is this. He is prepared. And God is doing the preparing. God is doing the table setting. He's doing, he's making the meal, the meal being his actual son's body. And so by faith then, um, we, we, we see Jesus' blood not as obscene history, but the only hope we'll ever have in life and death. It's the epitome of divine love, the ultimate romance. Uh, Jesus is... Not saying this is how you're saved. He's saying, I am your sal this is salvation. This is why you see this in the Bible. Like, Jesus never says, um, this is how you're saved over here. Because he is the salvation. Like, when I'm talking about it now, I am saying this is how you're saved because salvation's outside of me. And when you guys talk about the gospel with people, you're, you talk about it in those terms. And that's good. That's good for us. But when Jesus says it, he doesn't talk in those terms. He says, I am the door. I am the lamb. I am the resurrection and the life. To, to painstakingly, again, and in love, remind us it's not about something outside of him that you do or a, a box you check or anything like that. It's what do you do with him? That's the question. What do you do with him, Christian? 
or not yet Christian, what, what are we doing with the revelation of God? God coming into the world and saying, this is what I'm like. This is what I've done for you. Do you take refuge in my blood, my son's blood, or do you take refuge in what you have to give me? Do you take refuge in Jesus or refuge in you? Do you see how all this comes back to Genesis 3 and the lie of the serpent? The serpent saying, you're okay on your own. Just be good enough. Even keep God's commandments. You can do it. Just work hard enough. But that's the lie from the beginning. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve didn't have any laws. They just had God and things were fine. All hell broke loose when God said, don't have the tree of the one fruit, the tree of the law. That's when things went terrible. You know, now when Christ comes into the world and makes this New Testament that's one way, he's reestablishing this way of living. Rest. Uh, In fact, I want to wrap up here with, you know, I think God is, these words, here is your king, is not just Pilate's words to the crowd, but God's to us. Um, It's personal. This is not conceptual. Jesus is alive. He knows you guys intimately. He loves you. He forgives you, offers you forgiveness. All he asks is for your belief and trust. Um, All this stuff reminded me of... um, of Jesus' words to Martha in Luke 10, where he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Um, This is a really fascinating little uh, story. Uh, I'm not going to go into it in depth today. Just to wrap up, though, here, a couple of things. Um, There's this point in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus wants to go have dinner with these two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're actually um, Lazarus' sisters, we read about Lazarus earlier. Actually, Martha came up earlier uh, as well in uh, John 11, if you remember that. But um, in Luke, he's going to go for dinner. And Martha's response is to work really hard and to clean the house. And she's distracted by all this stuff. And Mary just sits at his feet. You guys remember this? Sort of like a tale of two sisters kind of idea, which I would say is also a tale of two covenants, like two stone pavements, two Passover lambs, two sisters. Um, this is not a coincidence. You have a sister of work and a sister of rest. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament. But um, Martha is concerned about doing things for Jesus. Just dial it up here. Martha's concerned about doing things for Jesus, preparing the house for him. Uh, Jesus says, only one thing is needed. It's me. The only time I can actually think of Jesus almost kind of correcting himself, which he's not, he's not wrong. But the only time I can think of where Jesus says, actually, Only a few things are needed. Ah, you know what? Scratch that. One thing. Only one thing is truly needed. And Mary, your sister Martha, chose the good portion, and she knows that I am alone what she needs. Just me. That's really it. You also see this word, um, preparations used, which is why I'm ending here. Martha, distracted by all the preparations, um, that had to be made, you know, uh, Jesus said to that, I am the prepared lamb. Uh, to, to those who seek to prepare their life for God and to clean it up, I am, I am the prepared lamb. I died on the day of preparation. So you don't have to prepare your lives for me. I am being prepared for you. You see the difference? This can't be seen, celebrated, sung about, or understood enough. Everything in the Bible is showing this. Are you trying to prepare your life for him or letting him be prepared for you? Um, This is not a parable about busyness. 
This is a parable about diverse spirituality, overly diverse spirituality, doing things for Jesus, outpacing, resting at his, at his feet. Or where the gospel just becomes one of many things. You know, like where your day might be consumed with worry over every second given over serving to God, or, sorry, over serving God to serving God rather than believing he has given every second to you. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's a type of anxiety that comes from that type of Christian spirituality that God is saying no to. He's saying to Martha, there's a better way. Um, he's saying, don't be so distracted over cleaning up your life that you miss me entirely. I'm enough for you. I'm not your beginning alone, but I am your everything. And I think that's his, that's his word for us as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, this, this passage of Scripture, this uh, second part of your sentencing, reminding us what you walked into um, the sponge that you were, that you walked into this coup d'etat and you absorbed it. You didn't yell against it, react against it, uh, make us feel like um, we had to change that state of our heart on our own. Uh, that's impossible. You knew that. Um, you came to wear it and, um, and to bear it as a Passover lamb. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for being the true and better stone pavement, the true and better Passover lamb, the true and better Thursday, the true and better Friday, the true and better uh, escape, the true and better exodus, um, all those things and more. Um, you have made a New Testament with us, one that Mary was starting to understood, understand and Martha, like, like all of us, is working on. It's hard to always live that way, but... Um, but help us with the Martha inside of us to just fully, truly believe that, that at the end of the day, one thing truly matters. Not what we do for you, but what you've done for us. That's the New Testament that, um, that we have. So help us to sing this last song in joy. Um, move in us, God, to believe uh, and to see the patterns of Scripture find their yes, their finish line in, in Jesus and just how important and central this event is in the Bible. In Christ we pray, amen.